listening to Not Good Enough, an inadequate response to inadequate responses. I'm Mitch Alexander. I'm Tom McLean. And I'm Evie. And as always, we've got Isaac in our headphones, fact-checking and sorting every joke into the winner and loser category for us to dissect later on. (laughs) (laughs) Where does that one go, Isaac? (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. There's only losers on this podcast. I'm sorry. There just are. Yeah, if we were winners, we'd have jobs in the media with like actual platforms. (laughs) Looking at my job in the media with an actual platform being like, yeah, no, even then it's still a loser and it's not it's not really that great. <laughs> yeah, you fucked it, Mitch. Sorry. You just have. I don't know if I fucked it. The other week I got to talk on national radio about NFTs and that was pretty fun. <laughs> just I think very... you fucked it by talking about NFTs. That might be true, but my uh, <laughs> crypto coin portfolio is to the moon. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm so lonely. You're the guy at parties that I avoid. I like the idea that if we were winners, we we would have jobs in the media, just like desperately sort of trying to get approval to get actual <laughs> opinions out instead of being like, oh, uh, the property market's looking strong. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had a job in the media so I could be curtailed in my reporting on either the budget or Palestine. Is that foreshadowing for the episode? Stay tuned to find out here on Not Good Enough, 3 NCR FM. (laughs) It's going to be going ahead and just mailing that out to all the uh, FM radio stations, Triple M, if you're hiring at the moment, I can smash my face against a brick wall for a little bit. Look, to be fair, we already have like radio-friendly names. Like, you know how Breakfast TV has like, you know, you're waking up with Fitzy and Whipper. Like, that's those are not real names. You've got to have like radio nicknames. They're like two syllables. (laughs) just got Macca built in. It's right there. You don't need to even be creative. You're listening to Not Good Enough with Tommy, Mitchie and Evie. You going with Tommy? <laughs> what are you doing? We've got Macca, Langers, Evie and Mitch with producer Isaac. Yeah. Fuck off, Triple M. Give us a goddamn show. I want to wake up at 3am five days a week to listen to Nirvana and Nickelback a lot. <laughs> just imagine the picture. You guys goofing around and me standing in the background with my arms folded, just shaking my head. Ah, <laughs> oh, the boys. <laughs> They're back at it. <laughs> but with your stance on being more anonymous online still in place, so your face is blurred out. It's just these shrugging shoulders. The... The picture would look so terrible. <laughs> Just because you know the style that they kit the radio hosts up in that like, you know, it's it's a you know, that's a nice shirt. I don't look good in a nice shirt. I look like someone who's like dad's dressed them up. No, but if it's got a collar, I look ridiculous. <laughs> I would have to take off any t shirt with a skull on it and put on something else. I'm not sure I'm committed to that. Triple M, take my resume off of the list. Just every Triple M stylist just being like, I'm um, afraid Mitch is kind of bursting out of that shirt. It's like, that's what happens to a shirt when you put it on Mitch and it floats. I actually did have to buy, if I, this is very personal, I did have to buy a shirt um, for like my birthday recently because I was taken to a very nice fancy dinner and with a mix of like my COVID uh, expansion and then just getting straight back into powerlifting, which has been successful for me, I just couldn't find any shirts in the regular section. So I had to go like look in the big man section. I'm like, I'm not that big. I've just got weird dimensions. <laughs> like I've just got an extra boy long section. body. It's just like, I was just like, oh, but I did take a bunch of normal sized shirts into the like change rooms and I got as far as like my arms being up and then feeling it almost tear across my back and then being stuck and just having to wiggle a whole bunch and then not looking flustered as the person who could definitely hear it looked at me. He's like, do you need assistance? Like, no, I'm good. Do you need assistance? <laughs> Big boy winter is here. I don't need assistance. I just need the fashion industry to cater to actual body types. <laughs> Mitch is big. Let's get on with the show. (laughs) 
controversial take for not good enough podcast. Fuck Christina Kersher Keneally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if she didn't want to keep on appearing on this podcast as Christine Kersher Keneally, she could stop doing fucked things anytime now. <laughs> Just be not fucked. Um, we've covered it on a bunch of episodes in the past, but Christina Kersher Keneally recently went over to um, offshore detention and took a trinket from a child who has spent most of their life in offshore detention and then paraded it around uh, during interviews that she was giving straight after being like, even though I voted for this exact type of thing to happen to this exact type of people, I feel in this instance it's bad and we should bring them home. And she's continued that trend of just being like comically evil and like like unfathomably obviously evil. I didn't think it was possible for a politician to think that low, but she was in Parliament <laughs> um, talking about it again and talking about a bunch of other stuff that she's bad on as well, wearing the necklace front and centre that she was given by the, one of these young girls. And it is just, I got a tension headache looking at it. I just feel... <sighs> Obviously, I, I got really upset about it last week just in terms of just the audacity of it. And, yeah, like, you know, she's a white woman who's taken this necklace from a child who's begging for her life in detention to say, I, oh. I, I feel like we need to clarify that she didn't steal it from the child. No. <laughs> she manipulated it out of the child. The child gave, quote, unquote. We don't her. know. To be fair, we don't know. We're taking uh, – Christina Kersha Keneally – has reportedly been given that necklace, but I've only seen Christina Kershaw give those interviews. I haven't heard from the family themselves. <laughs> yeah, it's just the audacity of, you know, wearing this child's necklace and saying, bring them home. Again, like just highlighting how it's politically useful for her to use this family's horrible torture circumstances, which have not changed if actively gotten worse, um, to make it an individual plea for mercy as opposed to acknowledging the fact that she is responsible for being part of these decisions to, that has led to this family yeah. being in detention. Yeah. She is actively campaigning to bring this particular family home, but in terms of the actual policies that she and her party support, like she's the shadow minister for immigration. Like she is heavily involved in setting the agenda of the Labour Party. And the agenda of the Labour Party is to maintain the indefinite detention of asylum seekers. So she's like, yes, bring this family home, but then immediately replace them with a different family, with a different <laughs> set of small children from whom I can accept another necklace. Like, she's just, yeah. you know, going to try and just continue this cycle of, like, putting a family in detention, getting a necklace from them, putting a different one and getting another necklace, just uh, hanging them up on her wall like a little series of trophies of, like, here are the families that my party's been instrumental in torturing. Good stuff, Keneally. <laughs> Disgusting. I'm trying to think of the exact term, but I just kept thinking through the week of how it's like, it's like a, it is like a trophy from a, like a serial killer or like a trinket that like a, a demon or a yeah. witch needs to use in a ritual. Like it's just, it's, it's got a such yeah, it's a token or a trophy. significance to it. And, and like, it's, it's really gross. It, it's, it's really fun. If she didn't want people to describe it in those terms, she could not take those. And if wants, if she wants to be taken seriously, advocate for the freedom of this family and all asylum seekers, as opposed to using it to further her political clout. And this is, this is in the same week that the uh, the clarifying international obligations bill was passed happily by both major parties in this country. It is a bill that they, uh, though the Liberal Party, uh, tried to get up after they were found guilty, well, not found guilty, 
a court essentially told him, you can't keep people indefinitely. It's illegal and it's a crime against humanity. And they went, hmm, what if we change the law to say we can? So I actually just want to intervene here. Um, so this is just uh, this was passed this week with bipartisan support. So again, mm-hmm. fuck you, Labor, for doing this. Um, this actually does have a much earlier precedent in the High Court of Australia. So there was a case called Alcatel versus Godwin and others. Um, it was a decision in the High Court of Australia in on and it was ruled on the sixth of August two thousand and four. Um, that was a decision that ruled that the indefinite detention of a stateless person was lawful. And, get this, the person involved was a Palestinian man who was born in Kuwait. Uh, who'd have thought? Who moved to Australia in 2000 and applied for a temporary protection visa. So what happened in that circumstance was the Minister from Immigration, they, he decided to refuse the application and it was, at the time it was upheld by the Refugee Review Tribunal and, uh, and the federal court, but... Um, then Al-Khateb decided that he wished to return to Kuwait or Gaza, whichever he was able to, um, because he was stateless. At that point, none of those countries would actually take him back, so he was declared stateless and he was detained under mandatory detention in Australia. So the point of the High Court's decision was to determine whether he was allowed to be detained indefinitely as a stateless person because none of the other countries where he came from and was a national of would take him back. And unfortunately, the High Court ruled that this was permissible underneath the Constitution of Australia. It was a majority of the court decided this and said that the act was not unconstitutional. Fortunately, in this circumstance, he was granted a permanent visa in October 2007, but that decision remains as a precedent to what has led to this week's decision. Um, it's it's insane and it is it should be people should consider it a preview of what will happen, like, you know, in terms of Australia's attitude towards Palestinians um, and towards all refugees, that if they want to contest even stateless refugees, you know, being allowed to be kept in mandatory detention, of course they will extend that to everyone, stateless or not. So so the the clarifying an international obligations bill, basically um, in sort of explicit terms, it says the law allows for the government where it had cancelled the visa of a refugee but could not send them back to their country of origin because they would face persecution there, can detain them indefinitely. And it also gives the minister a broad and unchallengeable power to withdraw a person's refugee status recognition, so declaring that they can be returned to the country that they fled. Yeah, and this the is what Christina Kershaw-Keneally voted for this week. Yep. Yeah. Gross. Yep. But also, oh, but bring please the bring that family, family home. home. Just, it's, it's fucking disgusting double standard. <laughs> She's so horrible. That's so cynical. Yeah, I, I, I can't get my head around it. It, it, it makes me feel very... I, I know I, I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm so tired of talking about this, but, it, like, you know, it, it, it's we feel on this podcast, I think, a responsibility to constantly highlight when this stuff happens in the background. And even though, like, it does get coverage, sometimes it feels like people don't realise how bad things really are and how cruel... The kind of laws are be- that are being, you know, being constructed to make Australia a much more hostile place for all people who wish to live here. Not just like refugees are like the canary in the coal mine. And first they target stateless people for mandatory de- detention. Now they've got it for refugees. Who's next? Yeah, and I mean, we're also seeing that they're absolutely willing to target Australian citizens with this you know, hostile sort of law yeah. with the, the refusal to accept um, people like returning to Australia from India. Like that whole thing. They're just like, 
they don't give a fuck who's a citizen or what anyone's visa standing is. They're just like, oh, look, if you're a problem for us, why don't we just throw you in prison forever? Why can't we just do that? Yeah. And this is this is bipartisan support. That's the fucking thing. Yes. And this is I, I really think that, like, it, it, it's worth highlighting why we hype up KKK being a bunch of shit when we're not highlighting Peter Dutton with that same sort of level of spotlight in the, you know, last 15 minutes of recording. Yeah, yeah. Which it- is like the media does report on this stuff. Like we we have – the reason we know about either of these things, KKK visiting the, the, the Biloela family or the, the Clarifying International Obligations Bill passing is because they get reported about in the media. But when the bill passes, it's just like with bipartisan support, the, the government has passed this bill. And then KKK goes and visits the family and the media is like, KKK is going to visit the family. Isn't that beautiful? There's no point at like which that line is like directly drawn where it says KKK who recently voted to indefinitely detain refugees visited the family or KKK who had just visited the family voted to indefinitely detain refugees. Like draw the line. Each one is really important context for the other. (laughs) <laughs> it needs to be talked about more. Like, these things don't happen in a vacuum. KKK is still a person at both times. And so, when it's reported like that, why isn't that stuff being put in context more? It's It fucks me up. I hate belaboring the point as well, but it has to be. Um, as you mentioned, people like to focus on the cruelty of Peter Dutton specifically or, um, or Scott Morrison even. Mm. But... The fact that it's bipartisan support means that everyone is to blame and everyone is just as cruel as a person who propositions the law in the first place. KKK is bringing that same cruelty as Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison is bringing to government policy. She supports it. Yeah, there's not many opportunities for everyday Australians, not in Parliament, to stand there and take a principled stand in writing and vote against something. But the Labor Party are some of the only people in this country that can do that, and they don't. Like, they're, they're, as, they're as culpable. We don't usually get votes on, you know, uh, individual bills as just citizens, not in Parliament. Christina kirscher Keneally is going, yes, I vocally and publicly agree on this exact thing. Um, and I mean, on, on your point as well, McLean, with the way the media talks about this sort of stuff, I think there is, there's just too much of a focus on this idea of like, oh, well, I'll just let the, you know, the people draw the lines themselves and I'll let our readers or viewers or listeners make the connections themselves. And I'm just here to report the facts. And it's like, you can't just report facts. The idea of objective journalism died in the 60s. Please stop with that line <laughs> and please make sure that the ideological stance that you're taking is one that does no harm as best as you can. The one where you are not explicitly drawing those comparisons and those lines is one that does harm to people that do not deserve or even need to have that harm done to them. That's a choice that you're making. I I think that it's also like just kind of wrong to say that it's not representing the facts. Like to say, Christina Kershaw-Keneally went and visited the family in detention right after or before, who cares, voting for the bill to indefinitely continue to detain families exactly like them. That, that's the facts. That's yeah. just the facts. That's not even editorialising. But it's a different story, McLean. The, you know. the, the, the connections that you draw between facts are also facts. Like, there's if, if you say, and that sucks in your article, now you're editorialising. Now yeah. that's, you know, that's the job of a podcast. But the, 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 the placing things in context is 
just factual recording. It's as factual yeah. to say Christina Kosha Keneally, who is the shadow minister for immigration, yeah. as it is to say Christina Kosha Keneally, who recently voted for blah blah blah, whose party's official policy on refugees is blah blah blah. Like th- it's it's uh, all factual recording. But it's even that highlighting of that fact is an editorial decision. And it is that kind of editorial decision that people are just cowarding out of making. People yeah. choose to omit. This is a big thing that people sort of forget. Is that like you not only just choose what to include, but you choose you choose how to include it and you choose what to not include. Yeah. And I, I think that's yeah. why when you say like the, the idea of objective journalism died in the 60s is absolutely right i mean I, I have no idea about what happened in the 60s uh i'm <laughs> not a historian i'm not a historian mitch come on um but the, the well then now you're doomed the to I- repeat the 60s <laughs> <laughs> the, the idea that there's any sort of like i possibility of of objectivity when you're like you have 400 words to report an article you are always going to be choosing what context to put in and yeah. what context to leave out and th- th- that's even if you are just doing a completely dry reporting of exactly the facts, that is editorializing. There's no way around it. Yep. Yeah. I, I just want to go back quickly to, McLean, to your point about uh, you can see the parallels that are drawn in terms of the way that we're treating now people who, like, you know, Australian citizens who want to come back to Australia. Um, you know, and the thing I was saying before, that the that refugees are the canary in the coal mine in Australia in terms of our absolutely cruel view to any outsiders at this point and it just feels like coronavirus is a very has been a very handy way for Australia to enact exactly what it's wanted for years which is to close ourselves off to pretty much anyone outside unless they have the money or the power to influence us yeah I mean it's also like in terms of highlighting refugees specifically as the canary in the common there's just so many canaries in so many coal mines in Australia like you look at <laughs> you know the treatment of indigenous people or the poor or people with disabilities or they that sort are, of thing yes. like there's just Every single place that you look, there is somebody being fucked over by the Australian government because the Australian government's position on anything that it can't be fucked to deal with is like, what if we just destroyed that segment of the population? Yeah, it, it's certainly much easier than controlling Why them. can't we just annihilate them, huh? That, that's an easy way to make the problem of poverty go away is if everybody who was poor just died, then we wouldn't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Now they're trying to push as many uh, like arts graduates as they can into that area where they can then kill them. So it's all yeah. it's all ideology, guys. I don't know if you've heard this before. It's all ideology. <laughs> uh, we really descended into pure ideology really fast in the segment, didn't we? <laughs> yes, we did. I think we started a pure ideology, you know, 160 episodes ago. Or <laughs> Why do you say the first ten weren't? The first ten were us. <laughs> I mean, I guess episode one was just us ragging on David Spears <laughs> for 45 minutes. Ah, oh, speaking really of. ideological more than like, I just hate his fucking face. Ah, uh, it's funny you bring him up. Let's move on to the next segment. <laughs> <laughs> so, unless you've been living under a rock or have been reading exclusively Australian media talking about the issue. Ah. <laughs> Good lead in. Uh, there is a lot of, uh, well... Tensions are rising in Palestine, quote unquote, i.e. that Israel is bombing the shit out of Palestine again. A lot of people have died and Australia is manifestly bad and has always been bad at covering this in a way that is explicitly clear about what is happening. Yeah, yep. it's been it, it's 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 something that I think a lot of people that listen to very leftist podcasts that aren't imprints of big media empires probably know a lot about. Um, but we're going to wade into those waters as well. Um 
basically, it's the same thing that we talk about when um, cops are reported on or, you know, de- uh, Indigenous Australians' deaths in custody, um, also about the budget, also about uh, politics, is the way the media... <laughs> any politics, yep. <laughs> it's just literally anything. Like, the way the media uses the passive voice and the way that it uses... It goes the long way around in reporting shit. I want a bunch of headlines uh, from Australian media over the last week about what's happened in Israel-Palestine. And just to be clear, what happened to start all of this was that Israel, as it continues to do, it essentially invaded a bunch of settlements and stole land from people who were living there. And so, quote-unquote, tensions rose, as you would fucking expect them. And then the Israeli military kicked off in Palestine. Sorry, just to be explicit about what led this uh, round of violence off um uh, Israel bombed Sheikh Jarrah, which is one of the settlements uh, in which Palestinians took refuge um, over the the line of like you know multiple invasions of Palestinian territory and uh, sort of siloing them into communities, in which now they're demanding that they pay rent and that Israelis are landlords for it. Um, and, of course, this is their land, and they want to push back against that. And as a response, Israelis are now bombing these Palestinian settlements. Um, but instead, what we've got from the uh, the ABC on the 13th of the 5th, death toll in Middle East rises as clashes between Israel and Hamas militants escalate. Uh, the age, 15th of the 5th, this was incredible. Mm. Never mind who started it. It's clear who benefits from the violence in Gaza Never and Israel right now. Never mind who started it. Fuck A little bit of both sides then. Um, ABC, 15th of the 5th, international condemnation of escalating violence between Israel and Palestine. Now, just just keep in mind that only one side of this has white phosphorus and drones and tanks and an organised Western military force. And, and facial recognition to detect Palestinians. One thing I think about a lot when it comes to the plight of Palestinians is that when I go think back to what I was taught or what I learnt about uh, the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict is precisely a fuckload of nothing when I was in high school. Um, Even when I did modern history, it was presented in very much, oh, it's very complicated and both sides have committed atrocities Mm. towards each other. And pretty much any media that I remember growing up was written explicitly in these terms. It took me a long time to sort of realise and, you know, educate myself. But this is like, this is also like the problem with the idea of saying, well, you should educate yourself. It was really hard to educate myself and seek out the correct resources to learn about what was happening. Yeah. And how are you supposed to know they're the correct resources? This is the thing that I kept coming back to. When you say like, you know, go educate yourself on, you know, X progressive issue. Usually when you do a Google search, fucking Breitbart shows up and you're like, oh, okay, I'll just read about this here. Who's this Milo Yiannopoulos? What's he talking about? (laughs) Like... Looping back on the fucking conversation with Christina Kirscher Keneally, that headline, death toll in Middle East rises as clashes between Israel, as if they're not connected. And that is, in a sense, objective reporting, but it is also a very subjective way of putting that that is a deliberate fucking choice. You are choosing how to report the fact that people are dying in the Middle East and they're dying because they were killed and one side has a military that they're using to kill people. For f- it's, it, it's 
fucking mind-blowing that we are still... Well, you know what? I was going to say it's mind-blowing we're still having this conversation. But the fact that so many places online at the moment are talking about this and there were protests over the weekend that were really fucking well attended, considering how poorly they've been attended for the exact same thing in the past, we really are at a tipping point at the moment, probably because of social media and fucking small-scale journalists and places like you know Twitter, YouTube, Twitch that allow... a different types of voices to filter into the consciousness that then the main places have to report on it. This is the cool thing. Uh, you know, it's worth saying that, like, we, we say, you know, oh, why are we still having this conversation? This is the first time we've talked about Israel and Palestine on the podcast. Like, yeah. obviously, partly because we're an Australian politics podcast and this is not, you know, uh, directly Australian politics, but, like, more people are talking about it and this conversation right now is a symptom of that. Yeah. Like, I... Absolutely also grew up with the sort of 100% of the narrative around Israel and Palestine being it's very complicated. It's a very tricky issue that's really difficult to pick apart. And <laughs> But over the last couple of weeks specifically, I have seen just lots and lots of videos of Palestinian civilian buildings being blown up and Palestinian families hiding in their house as Israeli mobs try and break their door down. And, and media buildings being blown up. <laughs> uh, you know, Israeli settlers trying to steal Palestinian houses. And I, I've got to say, those videos are not complicated. I can very easily put myself in the shoes of those people and be like, fuck, that's extremely horrible. Yeah. That, that's it. It's just, you can see it directly now. People can put up videos of them being, you know, abused by Israel and you can see it and you don't have to be like, oh, you know, I don't know the entire history of the region. I better withhold my judgment. You see the video and you're just like, fucking hell. Yeah. Yeah. Horrible. You know what? You know what really did it for me um, when I d- decided to educate myself and, like, you know, learn for myself. the 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 main thing that I the first thing that I saw was a picture of what Palestine looked like over the course of Israeli occupation and just how much the land dwindles. And then that, alongside the videos of Israeli forces attacking Palestinians, like. There is no way to say that that it is a complicated situation. They are taking that land by force. And it is so – it makes me very angry to think about how it has been successfully described as complicated over the decades um, to, you know, generations of people. I think that it's – complicated is just a really useful euphemism to sort of just like sweep stuff under the rug. Oh, it's very complicated so you can't make a value judgment on it. Yeah. Like, did you know that a heart attack is very complicated? Like, the, the human body is a very, very, you know, <laughs> complex system. There's a whole lot going on. There's so many different triggers for a heart attack. There's so many different conditions that can lead into it. But if you're having a heart attack, you don't go, that's nah, complicated though. You're just like, no, it's bad. You can say that. Something can be complicated and really, really easy to make a value judgment on at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I also just think, it, you know, the call that something is complicated is just a really good cudgel because you can't disprove it in, in, in the sense that, like, if I say it's complicated and you say it's not, I can just go, well, you don't understand it, actually. <laughs> and that's a very yeah. simplistic way. Of, and you've just you've actually misread the whole thing. And so from that position, you can just then dismiss everything else. But yeah. it is an apartheid state that is pushing people out of their own homes. It, they have a military force backed by the largest military force and economy in the world. It's not complicated. 
It is a colonial state. It is <laughs> occupying land that is not theirs. It's very fucking simple. I think you're even falling for it again, though, Mitch, because it is complicated. Like, there's genuinely so much complexity in it. Like, how does the Holocaust factor into how this is all going down? How does Netanyahu's personal corruption allegations factor into this? Like, there's there's tons and tons of complexity. And I just, I, I, I really do want to push this idea that it's fine for something to be complex and you not be fully informed about the whole thing. And you can still say, I'm informed enough to make a value judgment. What's what I'm saying? Who are you to judge, someone yeah. might say. And you can say, I'm me to judge, which is the maximum amount that anybody can be to judge something. Oh, yeah. That reminds me of some of like the Zionist tweets where I've seen like, oh, yeah, well, everyone's an expert on Israel and Palestine right now. It's like, no, not everyone is an expert. They just <laughs> no. have fucking eyes to see. I'm not an expert. I just think that children being slaughtered is wrong. Yeah. And like that's that's the part that isn't complicated. That's what I'm saying. There's com- there's complexity all the way down if you want to get into the weeds in this stuff, and I'm d- not disregarding that. But a hundred percent, the top level stuff isn't complicated. But that's what they want to complicate for you. They want yeah, you to go. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. the slaughter of children is pretty complicated, McLean. It's not though. It's actually it's not. not. The reasons behind the slaughter of children very complicated. The slaughter itself. Black and white, honestly. Yeah, and if we and if McLean, you want to become a historian and then dissect that fifty years after it stopped, then yes, then we can get into the complicated part of it. <laughs> but until then, it's pretty clear. And again, let's let's bring it back to the media. Uh, shout outs to Sky News, um, <laughs> who actually managed to have some of the best reporting on this. And this fucking blew my mind because I was going, <laughs> going to go into the Sky News YouTube, going to see some horrible shit. It's going to be really good to report on it. And they had uh, someone on their uh, on on the news, um, independent journalist. Anthony Lowenstein, who was on Sky News Weekend Edition, who just straight up said, nah, it's real fucked. It, the whole thing's really fucked. And Palestine's not at all equal to Israel in this. And please stop reporting on that. And can we please bring some balance to the reporting, which should say that Israel is very much in control of the situation. And it's like, ha. Huh. And all the comments on the, the Sky News uh, YouTube as well. Um, it's like, oh. I didn't realise I was watching the ABC. Is is this Sky News or the ABC? (laughs) Oh, Sky News went woke. It's like, no, they just had someone (laughs) choosing to report on different types of objective facts about the fucking situation. Although that's really funny because that really does say who the average Sky viewer is um, for the specific reasons that they watch it as opposed to, like, you know, it being, like, the only outlet that they have in, like, regional Australia or something like that. They're watching it for the Uh, racism. They're watching it for, like, uh, hovering on the edge of a slur. (laughs) And to be fair, the comments on there as well are people on YouTube watching it. I don't think there's people watching Sky News on their TV, no, no, logging no, yeah. into YouTube, finding the clip and then commenting on it. It's a very it's <laughs> a self-selecting also these people are the type of people that would fucking comment on a YouTube video. Yeah. Like <laughs> which you know, I've done. It can be fun, but also But do you love saying slurs, Mitch? <laughs> Why can't I just say anything? <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was it was very weird and it, I mean it was fun to watch the Sky News host just sort of being like, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. Can't believe I have to give props to Sky News for actually putting the clip up. I I think there's also, I just want to do a sort of kind of oblique shout out, a shout over to um, the the journos whose hands are tied in being able to provide their own commentary on 
on the uh, you know their own judgment you know like to to actually decry Israel's actions in this yes who 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 can't do that but who do use the sort of position that they have to get somebody on who is going to talk about Palestine in an unambiguous and you know like putting judgment like out there way like if, if you see a journo interviewing a guest and the guest is just going ham on Israel that journo is also like plausibly responsible for having that person on and letting them speak. Yeah. Even if they're not providing their own commentary. I think that there is something to say for like, you know, like so much of the, the sort of the, the, I'm going to call it good coverage of this has been from just Palestinian activists and journalists and stuff. Yes. Finally getting a spot on a new spot, sometimes with the, with the person interviewing them being like, hmm, but what about Israel? Blah, blah, blah. And that's like a really annoying question, but they are, asking that question like we do that on the podcast a lot oh you know mitch what do you think about this i know that he has something to say we've got it in a document (laughs) there's a sort of the prompting question that lets that person speak and i i want to shout out to anyone who's been responsible for getting that kind of guest onto the platform that they are for giving them a platform i I think that's really really valuable i actually want to speak to that um because in my very extremely limited capacity as a media professional which is uh occasionally doing the breakfast shift on a tuesday on 3cr listen in um shout out to 3cr (laughs) yeah they 3cr is you know one of the best uh, you know radical radio stations community radio stations in this country obviously a very pro-palestinian very progressive um shouting with their whole chest to have Palestinians on talking about, you know, their country and what is happening. Um, I just want to say I had such an incredible experience um, trying to get people to talk on the show because pretty much everyone wanted to come on to talk. And if they couldn't specifically in that time slot, they had five other people who said, well, I can't do this Monday, sorry, Tuesday morning slot. Here are five other people you could talk to for a pre-record. All extremely generous with their time all very happy to talk at length. There are people out there who want to talk to you and who want to have that, like who have the ability to talk on your platform. It is a specific choice to not choose them to be there or to have like talking Mm. heads talking about Palestine as if it's just like, you know, a a subject that they know about, but they don't actually have any lived experience in. Mm. Further to that point, I think is probably we should talk about um, how, the failures of progressive outlets in Australia as well, anyone who is an independent outlet such as Schwartz Media um, who calls themselves fearly, fearlessly progressive and yet doesn't have a lot, almost nothing when it comes to Palestine. <laughs> Not a lot to say on Israel. No, a, lot, a lot to say on Israel. Um, so we were when we were having this discussion, uh, something that I think is not very well known is that Schwartz Media has had this policy for as long as it's been around. Um, the head of Schwartz Media, Maury Schwartz, is very pro-Israel. Um, it is implicit in the way that the Saturday paper is run is that they don't publish articles about Palestine, or if they are, it's very weak source, I guess is a word to use. Um, <laughs> but that's not to say that there aren't contributors who aren't pro-Palestine. Oz Faruqi stuck, like, sticks his neck out all the time. Um, there are many other contributors who have spoken out in the last week or two uh, about like, you know, their personal views on Palestine. But the question remains of how much influence they can have 
on their publishing outfit, especially one that you know portrays themselves as very progressive. Um, I'll put a link to this in the show notes, but um, even Overland, who is another progressive outlet, again, very pro-Palestine, uh, and they also critique these issues in other outlets as well, back in 2014 wrote about the problem with um, the Saturday paper displaying themselves as progressive, but it's very much the element of progressive except for Palestine. And it's up to contributors to the Saturday paper, I think, to make that aware to readers. And I'm glad that that's happening now. We've reached a point where, like, you know, there's definitely a tipping point, I would say, in the way in which um, media personalities are talking about Palestine now, where they've decided enough is enough. Yeah, this week week has been a massive tipping point for the Palestinian, like... It's really been something to see. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've never seen this sort of shit It's always been a problem, but it's definitely the tipping point is now where people are like, enough is enough. We want to be able to elevate Palestinian voices. We want to be able to talk about our own personal, like, you know... um, positions on Palestine and write about it as well. Yeah, there is a um, an open letter that is uh, circulating now from pretty much it's, it's calling for anyone who is in any way in the media um, to lend their support behind the idea that um, editors and publishers should consciously and deliberately make space for Palestinian perspective prioritising the voices of those most affected by the violence and uh, I won't read really the whole thing but it's a bunch of um, journalists, media personalities, media crew, people on the back end, everyone just going, can we please talk about this issue like we would talk about anything else or like we say we talk about every issue? Yeah. And I I think this is really, the open letter is really important um, because I've seen, as others would have, uh, a lot of individual journalists being sort of questioned and I wouldn't say necessarily attacked, but definitely um, asked, like, you know, why is this the only thing that you've published about Palestine when you know that their personal opinions are very pro-Palestine? And I think that is kind of unfair because, as you said, Mitch, like some people are just up purely hamstrung by their career abilities in in what they're able to write and what they're able to say. And they've also looked at other young journalists, um, including Janine Kalik, who have had their career been extremely hamstrung by being openly pro-Palestine. And people need to eat. And I understand that, like, younger journalists are in a particularly precarious situation where they feel like they can't speak out. So, obviously, the answer is unionising and talking about it in a more collective fashion. And um, I just wanted to shout out specifically Elizabeth Humphreys, who specifically said, rather than attack individual journos, especially journos known to support a free Palestine, surely a better focus is throwing energy behind collective efforts to change the media landscape more fundamentally. And, you know, it, it's it's extremely heartening to see something like this, the, the open letter happening now, and efforts to, like, you know, organise around changing the context of Australian media to allow this to happen. More pro-Palestinian YouTubers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, like, this, this is the thing, and, I mean, we were talking about this before we recorded, but I think journalists at all levels and editors and publishers have different levels of responsibilities, and it does yes. essentially boil down to collective action and unionising, especially from the younger journos. But the younger journos, even in their precarious positions, if it is that big an issue for them, and this one seems like it is a very big fucking issue, join together and be public in your workplace and then as a professional in your specific career to be talking about this more and more as as best you can. And it's also 
incumbent on the senior journalists that actually have sway, that have the ear of their editors and publishers, who have some genuine influence where they work, to see that push and be like, you know what, that's the way things are going and I support this as well. And to get over that entrenched feeling of, well, it's just been like this for, for 20 years, not much I can do inside the systems. Like, y- you can. Yeah. You can like, probably... I'm not I'm not one who ever advocates for like, you know, get, in, get into the system, become a cop and then change the police force from the inside. <laughs> like, no, I don't believe in that. But you do have a responsibility to at least try if you feel like that is something that you can achieve. And from what we've seen with union efforts and inside corporations and especially inside media corporations, you fucking can do it. Stop being a coward, senior journalist I won't name for libel reasons. Like, fucking (laughs) do it. Put your neck out there. Yeah, it's a responsibility of senior journalists to stick their neck out um, and support those the younger people in their industries who look at their peers who are being actively harmed um, by speaking out and saying, no, actually, that's not on. And if you're an editor and a publisher, just fuck you. Do it. Stop fucking putting up barricades to this shit. It's important to talk about. Be fearless about it if you say you're fearless. This is yeah. that's the thing that I keep coming back to is stop laundering progressive values and saying that you're fearless reporters reporting from the burning edge of the climate crisis and then not talking about <laughs> something like this like it's a it's a it's a giant fucking black hole in a lot of these media companies um output. And it's just I just feel like what what has been nice is the flashpoint now has had a lot of people like looking at you know Sky News and Fairfax and all of it and like you guys are absolutely fucked and then very slowly turning around and looking at progressive publications and being like actually fucking hang on a second and that's that's fucking cool because when the focus goes on those quote unquote progressive publications the young journalists who are there who by and large are very fucking progressive and want to be doing this good work can be like yeah let's attack them on two fronts. It's good. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for the idea that a publication is progressive or just the sort of quote unquote progressive is the, well. the, the right way to put it where like th- there's so many things where it's like, oh, you know, like these people are, you know, pretty lefty on climate, but they're weirdly silent on you know, workers rights or, you know, the unemployed or trans rights or, or whatever. Where It's like progressivism just really isn't a single thing. Like, you sort of can judge somebody's opinion on China if you know their opinion on vaccines, but <laughs> it, it's it's just not a, a single monolith. And so, I think that there's just a sort of logical black hole there where it's like something being left-wing or progressive or whatever is like a useful shorthand, but it, it does sort of cover over the fact that Sort of everyone's just like a different person and everyone's going to have slightly different takes on any issue. It's like, just be aware of when progressive is being a useful shorthand to sort of group like-minded people together. And when it's like actually driving your expectations and and views of something that's like, oh, they're progressive though. It's like, maybe not on everything. (laughs) Yeah. I reckon let's let's just go a step further though and really get to the fucking heart of it. If it's a corporation <laughs> describing themselves as progressive, they're not. It's a corporation. It's a selling point. That is a way to segment the market and, like I said, to launder progressive values for profit. You're kind of missing the boat on progressivism. So you can, yeah, you can jo- join progressive dots between certain papers and whatnot. But if it's a for-profit media, at a certain point, the the progressive credentials are going to fall down and it's going to be something that needs to turn a profit. But like in terms of the individuals that are there, 100%. 
But when it comes to a for-profit organization, it's a marketing It's not tool. your mate. It's, they're not your mate. They don't exist. They're not real. It's a fucking- <laughs> It's a logo. Give up yeah, on logo. It's a line on a balance sheet. <laughs> Speaking of balance sheets, let's get into budget winners and losers oh, no. 2021. I fucking segued it. I wasn't even thinking. You Shit. walked straight into that and oh, McLean fuck. is now hanging from the ideological rope around his ankle, swinging above the jungle floor and me and all my friends are <laughs> laughing at him. <laughs> straight into Let it. Let me down. No. <laughs> winners and losers. Isaac, bring up that big spreadsheet I did before. Let's go through line by line who won and who lost when it comes to getting money for essential things you need to live <laughs> everyone lost we all lost having to watch the budget. <laughs> are you the saying budget. evie that we are all losers yes <laughs> unequivocally yeah. we are yeah. <laughs> Mitch, we're podcasters <laughs> <laughs> losers by default <laughs> it always makes me laugh when people talk about podcasters in a really angry way as grifters is like man we're like offering our opinions for like we're not even offering our opinions for money like we're even the like, bigger chumps <laughs> Yeah, like, I could be playing Apex Legends right now. We don't even have the self-respect to get paid for this. <laughs> We're just we are doing piggies shit in the muck. <laughs> we are rolling around in the muck. <laughs> Please, sir, listen to my opinion, sir. <laughs> this is this is essentially just of a piece of the last conversation. I don't think we need to belabor the point, but the budget, federal budget, was announced. It was as fucking boring as you can imagine. Actually, watching it and. Again, the details don't matter. Yes, the federal budget is kind of complex and there's a whole bunch of shit in there that would probably go over my head if I got into the to the weeds of it. Don't give a shit. Give me money. But the big <laughs> problem that I had, and this is, again, a smaller, much smaller flashpoint, but it was still really cool to see, a bunch of people just talking about like, man... The Australian media ecosystem is real fucked when it talks about the budget because we always just put it into winners and losers as if this is like a bingo night or a raffle and we're seeing how many people win the biggest prizes and, oh, better luck next time, poor people who now have essential services cut who will literally materially struggle for at least the next four years because of this. You lost. <laughs> Fossil fuel industry, though. Big winner. Ding, ding, ding. And it, it's just really fucking gross to see us, as a default, uncritically fall back to this winners and losers dichotomy when we're talking about the budget. I just it, It's just another thing where I was just like, media, the media needs to do better in how we report on things like the federal budget. It, the, the idea that like, oh, winners, fossil fuel companies, it's like, again, I will always come back to this. You, anyone, will be personally affected by climate change. And so anytime a fossil fuel company is a winner... Everyone loses, including the people working at that fossil fuel company, <laughs> including the fucking executives of that fossil fuel company. The, 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 this is the thing. There's like, you, the, the, the budget's just a bunch of shit. <laughs> <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> it's not even real. The government just imagines shit and they'd write it down as a press release. That's what the budget is. The, the, the government's constantly announcing, oh, we're going to put X billion dollars into this. We're going to take X million dollars from that. And then they don't 
because it's all made up. Oh, the budget projects that jobs are going to like Ford immediately explode and everyone's going to get paid more and everyone's going to be in full employment by yeah. fucking two Fridays from now. And also the budget predicts that everyone in Australia is going to be vaccinated, even though that's not the government's own projections. Like it's a bunch of nonsense. Like it's not even, oh, it's wrong to split it into winners and losers. It is wrong to listen to it. <laughs> Morally. <laughs> it's idiots. Um, I mean, remember a couple of years ago before COVID um, when the government was like they did a budget or in the lead up to the budget talking about how we're in surplus. How are we in surplus? Well, four years from now, we'll be in surplus. What are you? What? We're not in what surplus right about? now. No. But we are, we're going to be in surplus. Who the yes. fuck cares so we're about in surplus. surplus. I'm so what? shitty. I hate talking about like we don't need extra money. Spend my fucking money, bitches. <laughs> it's not real. It's not real. This idea that fucking David Spears, bringing it back to episode one, David Spears, fuck off. For some reason, actually, I've got a bone fuck to pick you, with the three Spears. of you. I was watching <laughs> Insiders this morning, and for some reason, none of you stopped me. And you should have known I was what? doing it, despite the fact you? I didn't okay. tell you. Because you weren't Mitch, there for me. Because Mitch, you let me down. This is this on you three. This podcast is very against self-harm. That is self-harm. <laughs> it was fucked. I don't know why I did it. David Spears was interviewing Josh Frydenberg and his fucking first big swing question for this Josh Frydenberg interview. Interview with the treasurer on Insiders. Oh, the treasurer. In your first speech, you said the government needs to learn to live in its means. When will that happen? Oh, Got him! Despite the fact that they fucking never have, and the budget's bullshit, and it doesn't mean anything, he Death's just fake. It, Money's not real. Just and just kept going on about, are you going to cut spending at the next budget? When, when, when what's this surplus happening? What are you? Gonna, we're borrowing money to pay for all this stuff. It's not real though. Stop talking about a surplus. Stop talking about wage growth. Stop talking about winners and losers. It's not what the budget's supposed to be about. This budget. Support the budget reply from Labor as well. It's nothing. Stop it. Nothing. The sole point of the budget is to give the government a platform to talk about whatever it wants to talk about in the terms that it wants to talk about them in. There's no other reason for the budget. It has no other impact. Yeah. Fuck anyone who paid any attention to the budget. (laughs) You're part of the problem. Oh. (laughs) Uh, We're doomed to like another like century of talking about the budget as if it's a household budget. Like- yeah, like we need savings. Ugh. What the fuck does a country need savings for? We don't need savings for a rainy day. Spend it now. Oh, what if I need a new PlayStation? No, <laughs> money printer go burr. We know this. It's just it, it's it's fu- yeah. It's it's a fucking maddening thing to watch because like if the budget meant anything, this this you know this annual budget thing where someone who wants to be prime minister gets up and tries to look impressive. If it meant anything, then we would have been fucked through COVID because they would have had their budget already in place and they would have gone, hmm, well, we didn't factor in a global pandemic when we gave the last budget, so I guess we can't do anything. So they can change anything that they talked about. At any point. Yeah. It's, it's, we live in a post-COVID climate crisis world. Shit changes so much every day. Governments have to respond to that in really short turnaround. There's going to be another natural disaster. There's going to be another fucking breakout. There's going to be a humanitarian crisis. There's going to be 
all kinds of crazy shit going down. We're in the phase of society that is like the late game SimCity thing where you just keep picking crazy disasters from the <laughs> menu. And they're Tripod like, oh, animals. we've got a pretty solid four-year plan. Like, as if. As if. <laughs> so, yeah, look, here's, here's, here's how I want to try to synthesize this. Whenever the budget comes out, if you talk about it in terms of winners and losers and those losers are migrants or poor people or teachers or nurses or whatever then you're craven and immoral and bad and also if you are talking about the budget as if it's real and matters you're a different type of bad (laughs) you're just a sucker (laughs) where losers you're a sucker i also think that like (laughs) the idea that (sighs) David Spears, you little fuckhead. You live <laughs> in this society. You're part we of it. We live in society. Right? Hey, I've, I've got a question for you, man. Do you <laughs> want to live in a good society or a bad society? McLean's as a journalist, because as society. soon as refugees and poor people are losers in the budget, guess what? You live in a worse society. <laughs> and as someone who now lives in a worse society, you are also the loser. I can't believe everyone but- in this podcast has been jokerified now. <laughs> you, why can't you believe that? <laughs> it took this long. When did we start Jokerified? <laughs> yeah, no, we, we started with broken brains because of the fucking ashes of koala noses choking us when we tried to cycle to work during the bushfires. I think we've started from a pretty bad base. Which, by the way, we've done nothing to stop that happening again. We've absolutely made things worse. Uh, but but you will be happy to know that in the Ford estimates from the budget, they have earmarked an additional $17.3 million to help those affected previously by the government not spending money on the bushfire victims that weren't as a part of the initial budget from the Ford estimates from uh, 1718, McLean. So you'd be very happy about that. Oh this God. is fucking... I saw a TikTok the other day that was like sponsored concert content from the bloody uh, who knows who that was like, did you know that in the most recent budget, good news for people who were earning under $120,000, there's a new tax offset that you can take advantage <gasps> of. And it's like, my nieces are going to die in climate change. <laughs> can I fucking have something? Uh, keep your fucking tax offset. <laughs> Let's have more than 30 years of future humanity, please. Yeah. All of my friends who have had babies in the last year and a half, like all those babies are going to experience an incredibly bad world in which I have benefited from benefited from by getting an extra like thousand dollars or what the fuck ever in the next budget. Like, thanks, Josh Frydenberg, I guess. Like, what? You're a winner, yeah. Davey. <laughs> David Spears. Again, I'm coming back to you, David Spears, you fuck. You have two children. What are you doing? Winning. He's got a, he's got oh, a tax off. I'm the winner of the budget yeah. because my children are also gonna die in a climate apocalypse. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Pretty good. So this is the type of budget coverage that the ABC and Channel Nine should have. It's just people See, on, at the desk being like, uh, "I've resisted <laughs> reading literally anything about the budget until this morning because I don't care. Um, it's just a circus. <laughs> and you shouldn't. No one You're should care. Right to not care. I still have read like the bare minimum, um, and just. The, just the idea of like like journalists just frothing themselves over like you know any sort of winners and losers it's like losers like women great like 
I don't care. Yeah, yeah. all sorts of fucking graphs that come up. With, like winners, aged care, losers, women. <laughs> what? Yeah. But the every fuck? every budget forecast or every budget response should just be just people just going ape shit, losing it, losing it about how bad everything is. That's all it should be. Smearing excrement yeah. on the camera, screaming now. <laughs> just David Spears shirtless, scratching himself. That's what we need. That type I'm of- just pointing at a big graph that's just two lines on a chart and they're exactly the same line and one of the lines is years that Scott Morrison is still alive and the other chart is years that Scott Morrison will continue to fuck over vulnerable people at maximum possible velocity. Uh, this has been a really therapeutic the, episode. I've screamed a lot. It's great. That's the budget 21. Yeah, guys, get on board. Join a metal band. <laughs> if anyone's after some metal, Eye of the Enemy, you can find us on Spotify and Triple M. <laughs> I'm still, I'm st- I am still angling for that job. If anyone's after some shit little synthesizer sting. <laughs> <laughs> Is this even? Oh my god! Is this a new shout out? This is just a whole other segment that we can talk about. Shout out to bloody Celeste Little, who is running for the seat of Cooper for the Greens in the next election. Uh, hopefully, unseating Jed Carney. Kearney, who cares? Uh, <laughs> after the next election, we'll never have to hear that name again. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fucking incredible. Celeste Little is a unionist. She's the uh, National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organizer for the National Tertiary Education Union, the NTEU, which used to be my old union. They're the ones that I've actually talked about how sometimes they can be pretty shit <laughs> and you no they're fucked they're fucking useless um but they but have not celeste little well this is the thing they have good enough people in there that when their fucking base and the people that are good in there go hang on that's fucked can we do better they go okay and they do and she has been fucking instrumental in that um she's been a writer for fucking ages she's been an agitator she's fucking fantastic and i'm very excited that she is running for the federal seat of cooper it's just my seat hey well i guess we're gonna have to go campaign for the greens now her electricity brought us back in (laughs) yep also though electoralism's total dog shit don't vote who cares but No, nah, do vote. <laughs> no, 100% vote. Also, most importantly, she's an Arente woman living on unceded Wurundjeri land. Lydia Thorpe's talked a lot about how Aboriginal representation is very important in Parliament, but how manifestly yeah. fucking difficult it is because the amount of torrent of shit every time someone puts their hand up makes everyone else go, huh, I really don't want to do that. So fucking yeah. good on Celeste for actually just muscling in there. Poster as well. So I'm oh, really excited about how this is going to go. Master poster. Yeah. We speak a lot on this podcast about how we just wish that people would start taking things personally and tearing shit up in the places that they actually have influence. And Parliament is a real... Like, that's the prime example of that. Where, Jed Kearney, you, again, are personally going to be on the receiving end of climate change, right? You already are and you will be in the future and it's going to get worse as time goes on, especially as inaction continues. So why the fuck aren't you constantly freaking out about that? Why aren't you, like, tearing shit up? Celeste Little is going to tear shit up way more than Jed Kenny ever would because we've seen this this is Israel versus Palestine as well. The indigenous populations that are getting fucked up by the colonial force that's fucking them up don't have a choice but to constantly fight. 
I'm a very privileged white man. I could bow out of this podcast tomorrow and my life, aside from the climate change shit, would be largely <laughs> fine. I don't have to fight constantly. And that's why, like, when people are suspicious of, you know, white allies and that sort of thing, it's because we're not forced into it. Your skin yeah. isn't in the game. My skin isn't in the game. That's very well put. <laughs> I just want to actually just uh, – I mentioned Lydia Thorpe before um, and um, what she's spoken about in terms of how difficult it is um, to be an Aboriginal woman standing up and wanting to be a represent, like representing their electorate. Uh, I'll just say what – like in her words, she said, people like me were not meant to end up in places like this. Our voices were silenced and sidelined and written out of the story of our own country. Like, you know, she, she said that, that like it, it was deemed – laughable yeah. that she would even be there and it's so interesting to me to see the reaction to Celeste standing up for nomination now um it, I'll just use her exact quote here she says like every time on every panel of discussion I've ever been a part of since 2012 they said so Celeste how do we get more left-wing Aboriginal women to put their hands up and run for parliament so there's better representation <laughs> and she was like all my Twitter mentions right now people saying oh no not like that we don't want you to do it like that <laughs> You're running against Jed Kearney. She's a she's a strong unionist woman. Hey, Celeste is too. I saw someone say, why are you running against Jed Kearney? She's been such a strong supporter for Indigenous causes. Oh, my <laughs> fucking God. <laughs> the entitlement of some people. So fucking good. Hey, Labor, go win some fucking seats from working class people who vote for the Liberal Party. Go it's on. Electoralism. It's electoralism. Yeah. It's, it's an inner city Melbourne seat. It's an inner city Melbourne seat. It's going to go to the Greens eventually. Fuck off and actually go and do something worthwhile, like support the workers you claim to support. For fuck's sake. No matter what. We're like Jed Kearney, as somebody who's running in a Labor Greens race and not a Labor Liberal race, is representing the conservative option. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Why would you run someone progressive against the conservative? Well, because maybe Why progressives not? want somebody more progressive to vote for. And also, look, if Jed Kearney's that great to her constituents and she really is the good progressive option, then a bunch of progressives are going to vote for her and that's democracy, baby. Yeah, cool. I mean, That's we live in a society. Labor's going to put an absolute <laughs> shit fight of a campaign up. Yep. I, I, I don't think that this is like, oh, you know, good news, everyone. The election is won. The Greens have put up Celeste Little. It's it's swapped. We don't need to talk about Jed Carney anymore. Like, th- this is going to be a tough election. Mm-hmm. I, I have no idea who's going to get in. And if Jed Carney gets in again... I'm not going to be like, well, that's democracy, baby. I'm going to be like, as I thought, democracy's fucked. Well, yeah, no, you shouldn't be like, that, that's democracy, baby. That is when a party puts up a candidate. When Jed Kearney inevitably gets in because they dredge up like nine-year-old tweets, you're like, ah, that's democracy. Yeah, that's democracy, baby. A giant system of who can control the media and lie the best gets Who's to decide money? how we will fail to address climate change. That's democracy, baby. I love it. <laughs> That's the official line of Tom McLean from the podcast, but not the podcast itself. Ecofascism, only way forward. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> uh, well. 
And finally, actions this week. There is yet another protest in support of Palestine and against the illegal occupation being done by Israel. If you're in Melbourne, May 22nd at the State Library, 1pm, get down there. If you're in another state, look it up. There are a bunch of other protests taking place. Yeah, Mitch and I were at the uh, one on the last Saturday and the speakers were constantly talking about how much it meant to them to see people showing up to show their support and solidarity. So I I think it's, yeah, see you at the next one on Saturday. All right, let's wrap this up with one final plug for a um, commercial FM radio station. (laughs) Thanks again for listening to another episode of Not Good Enough. You can reach us on all the socials at NotGoodPod or email us at NotGoodPod at (laughs) ProtonMail.com. So good. (laughs) This is what happens when I watch Insiders. Oh, man. Not Good Enough was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded.